Do you like a little magic in your books? Is your reading reality a fantasy lost in the stars? Then you've come to the right podcast. I'm Lauren, and I love reading fantasy and sci-fi. So I'm taking it to the next level. Join me as I interview best-selling fantasy and sci-fi authors and industry pros on their beloved stories. Welcome to the Ink Feather Podcast. In today's episode, I'm interviewing author A.C. Goggin about her Elemente books. The first one, Rain the Earth, came out last year, and the sequel, Imprison the Sky, is out on January 22nd. Annie talked with me about writing strong female characters who are learning how to deal with the after-effects of their powers, non-traditional love triangles, why she chose elemental magic, and much more. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Annie. Welcome to the Ink for the Podcast. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me here today. I am so excited to talk about these books. We're here to talk about Rain the Earth and Imprison the Sky. Imprison the Sky is out tomorrow, which is the 22nd of January, and it's book two in this Elemente series. And I guess before we dig in, for those listening who maybe have not heard of the series, have not read book one, tell us about the series in, in your words. Tell us about the books. Yeah. Um, so the Elemente series, I think as a whole, is looking at the changing pieces of this world um, that's sort of been engulfed in a world war about seven years before Rain the Earth starts. And it's still dealing with the repercussions of that, especially as one of those countries is coming back to power um, and really making some poor decisions and sort of mm. a leading them towards another world war. And it follows different women as they come into this elemental magic. So the first book, uh, Rain the Earth, follows Shalia, who is the daughter of a high-ranking desert clan, and she gets set up in a political marriage to Calix, who is the king of the Trefected, and he is the person who is sort of making some of those bad decisions and leading people towards war. <laughs> he's not, you know, he's an interesting person, but... He's not the best. We'll talk about him in a best. minute. Yeah, he's not the best. But he... Um, he has a really deep and irrational hatred of the magic users in this world, the Elemente. And it isn't until she marries him that Shalia actually finds out that she is one of these magic users. So she has the ability to manipulate the earth. Um, and then she tries to both figure out a way to advocate for peace in her marriage because she truly believes in the things that she gave up and sacrificed Um to really try and hope for peace for her people and his people. Um, but she also needs to protect herself and protect a lot of people like her. So she's in a tough position. In the new book, Imprison the Sky, it jumps perspective. So we follow Aspasia, who is a ship captain. Um, she has actually been in a trading empire, an illegal trading empire, in a country across the sea called Soraka. And she has been captaining her own ship for a little while and has been involved not only in sort of trading goods, but in trading slaves. And this is something that she came into this life because she was forcibly made a slave and then sort of worked her way up in this, you know, illegal empire. Um, so she has a lot of issues with what she is doing, and she's trying to both make the situation better for a lot of people, um, but acknowledges that she is doing really terrible things in the pursuit of that goal. So she is grappling with some really big issues um, and also trying to fight for what she believes in as she uses her really tremendous power. I think of the four narrators that I have in mind for the series, 
Aspazia is probably the second most powerful. She is definitely the most in tune with her power, but she still oftentimes feels powerless and she's absolutely haunted by the times when she had no power at all. I kind of want to delve right into what you just said, because I have a note here about these strong women characters that are just driving these books forward. But yet you have these complexities of of what motivates them and and. Uh, you, you talk about it more in book two, but it, I think it's very relevant for Shalia as well in book one about how there's these moral lines in the sand that we say we will never cross. But then what if you need to cross them to achieve what you think is your ultimate goal? And, and I guess talk about writing characters with those dilemmas and their motivation behind it. Yeah, I mean, I think that really this whole series for me is exploring the nature of what power looks like when it's in the hands of women. Mm. Um, And I think that for Shalia, one of the most radical things that she believes in is peace. Um, And I think that's actually a really, we don't see that a lot in literature. We don't talk about that a lot in modern day politics. We don't really talk about that a lot in young adult or middle grade fiction. But the notion of peace is something that is, it can be very sacrificial. It can be at odds with pride. It can be at odds with all of my deep-seated Slytherin tendencies. Oh, um. <laughs> I'm a Ravenclaw, so all right. At least we know where oh, we're dear. at on those. Oh, terms. dear. That's okay. You're, you're clever and we I'm can... bookish, yeah. I guess, even though you're the author. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that, you know, for Shalia, there's a lot of things that I got to explore through her perspective. And one of them is this really difficult transition that she goes through because she's in an arranged marriage. Yeah. So she starts out the book seeing her only value as her little literal physical self, right? Like her ability to enter into this marriage, there is power in her physical body. Yes. In sort of being given away to another culture. Um, and she can, she can't fight like her brothers. She can't, you know, kill people with swords, but she can acknowledge this power that she has, but that power gets really deeply complicated because, you know, your body in a marriage is, a very complicated thing. Um, It becomes more so for her when her marriage is not really a great fit for her um, or for anyone, I think. (laughs) It's really, really not a very positive place Um, and becomes further complicated when she has a power that is based on her blood. So there is literal power in her veins um, that she does not know how to control. She's not sure she wants it. She spends not terribly long in the book, but there is a short period of time where she's really considering a way to get rid of it um, and get it out of her altogether so that she doesn't have to face it. She's, she gets it after she's married to a guy who loathes it and she's realizing she might have it right when she's learning how much he loathes these elementae. So I would want to get rid of it too. It'd be like, Oh my God, please help me. You know, part of what happens in book one is he's trying to find this magical, um, elixir that can eliminate the powers. And she was like, oh my gosh, I need to help him find this so I can take it. <laughs> so I don't have to deal with this. And, but yeah, she, you're like you said, it's, it's, she, she does finally realize that that's part of how she can take power back for herself is by actually using the gift she was given. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think, you know, the way she starts out in the book, it's much easier for her to think of herself as a sacrifice. You know, that if she does this one act, if she goes into an arranged marriage, everything will be fine. And she hasn't really spent a lot of time thinking about what it'll be like afterwards. 
And I think it's very complicated for her to see herself as a person with power. Um, And that's something that she sometimes struggles to do as someone who not only has the ability to impact change, but the responsibility to impact change. I think that's one of the most, you know, dramatic changes that she goes through to really fight for what she wants. She has to be the one acting. Um, She can't just be influencing others. She can't be manipulating others. It has to be her taking action. Now, but for Aspasia's element, well, the way she handles it, it's kind of the opposite. She already seems to embrace the fact that her, her power gives her power and lets her be who she's kind of trying to be. But at the same time, she still has to make those choices and hide who she is and make those decisions on, again, what lines she'll cross. Yeah, I think Aspasia definitely runs sort of straight into a wall with her power because she grew up very powerless. She was stolen from her family. Um, she was forced into slavery. She kind of, in some senses, you know, I think there's a part in the book where she says that lucky is not the right word for it. But in some senses, she got lucky um, in her situation that she was put in a place where she could work. She could do things that would earn her some freedoms Um, And she was able to ultimately, when she realized she had this power, hide it Mm -hmm. um, and use it to her benefit. So she has spent a lot of time because it's been very, very helpful to her to have this power. So she's developed it. She has really learned how to use it. She also, the way the the power works. um, So when the First World War happened, the powers essentially got eradicated. um, And Calix, you know, was involved in that to some degree. and when those powers were, you know, sort of hunted down, they recoiled. So they went back into sort of an elemental um, safe house, if you will. And before the any of the actions of book one, even um, one of Shalia's best friends has been going around the world trying to figure out the way to reopen these powers. So she's been able to reopen them one at a time. Um, so air, which is the element that Aspasia controls, was actually the first one to be open. So Aspasia has had this power longer than just about anybody in the book. Um, and she has had longer to get to know it and really get to understand what it feels like. She's also, during that time, been the captain of a crew of children who have this power. So she was very quickly put in a position where she had to know a lot about it so that she could help other people figure out what was going on because otherwise you're trapped on the ship with somebody who can light things on fire and that's kind of a problem <laughs> a strong-headed boy who's kind of a brat trying to light yeah. things on fire too you really, he's really <laughs> oh, he tries he's such a sweetheart but he's such he's he like a brat feelings. oh my gosh but yeah he's he's hot-headed that's very very accurately <laughs> his element oh my gosh um but yeah i mean that's part of what happens i'd say in the middle of book two she starts to kind of I don't want to spoil who she's teaching, but she's teaching a, a, a friend how to harness their power and understand it more and have it not be so intermittent. And again, I, I'm multiple people, actually. And the one person she's helping is is a new Earth Elemente. And and again, because it's the, the newest one open. So, yeah, I can see how that you know, her shaping who she is, it, you're right, it kind of shaped her life and gave her a a purpose, you know, beyond just the obvious purpose of what her life is. Absolutely. And I think, you know, she also keenly feels the limitations of it. Like, mm-hmm. 
for Shalia, we really never see the limitations of what her power is. Um, we really never see how far she can or cannot go. She really doesn't have that moment to, you know, sort of clear her throat with her powers. Um, but with Aspasia, she she knows her her limitations are really emotional and psychological. So she is still, you know, sort of under somebody else's power. And despite the fact that she has so much power at her own disposal, she really does not have the ability to cut ties and run because of what it would mean for the people she cares about. Um, so that she sees her tremendous power really being boxed in by things that are still out of her control. So I think, you know, she's always very much haunted by those times that she had no power at all. And she's afraid of herself in sort of those those moments. But at the same time, she also definitely has um, more psychological barriers than even Shalia did. I mean, I think as Shalia starts to get to use her power, she she will be in a much better place to sort of use the full breadth of it. Whereas obviously she had a hard time trying to figure out how to learn it when she first did because of the circumstances mm -hmm. that she is, was in. But, you know, Aspasia, I don't want to say came more damaged, but she kind of did. And like you said, those are the walls she's running up against because she wishes she had more power. She wishes she could change the bad things of her past, which happened before she had power and, and she's trying to make up for that, those things that she feels helpless about. And, and, but yet she, she has a kind of mature understanding of what having this tremendous magical ability um, means and how to, like the boundaries you need to be aware of, even if she doesn't always listen to those. I mean, there's a part where she, she, she keeps pushing herself very hard in this book and just like disregarding emotions, disregarding advice from people who love her and just be like, you know, there's times where she's just pushing herself too hard and almost reckless with her power, but she knows better. She can definitely be very reckless with her power. Yeah. She's very interesting. These characters are just very interesting to me because they're both very complex. And like you said, they're such strong women. And I love the fact that, the book, the planning of the series that you have is obviously the four main elements, I'm guessing, and mm -hmm. uh, and that they're going to be women and women with these powers and how they take control of their own lives and the lives around them with their will, with their power, with their knowledge. And just like you said, it's done in a different way for both of them. But I, I saw these multiple complexities in these in these women so I, I love that they're so different but yet I was kind of like all right they're kind of you know doing what they can in, in their various situations to help those around them the best that they can for sure they actually they have a lot of sort of core values in common which is interesting because the two later protagonists the the girls who are both fire and water really do not have the same core values at all. And actually their core values tend to compete very much so with Shalia and Aspasia. And I think that they definitely differ in some of those things, but Shalia and Aspasia both so deeply feel the need and the importance of family. That is such a huge through line for the two of them. And yes. it's definitely something that, you know, given the chance, I think they'd be very, very good real life friends. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And okay, so I kind of want to think about, so take these guys and t I'm thinking about their situation as we're talking and how they could be friends, but they're both up against kind of awful humans <laughs> who are challenging their 
existences in various ways. Um, in mm-hmm. book one, like you said, Shalia has to marry Calix, and he's kind of a jerk. <laughs> that's a yep, summary. That's putting it mildly. Yep. Though he was way more complex than I was expecting. He wasn't just straight evil. He was evil, but he had glimpses of possibly his version of feeling, which I thought was interesting. And then we have who Spazi is dealing with kind of her handler so to speak is cyrus and she basically holds a super long leash on aspasia and it's um you know even though it's a a really really long it's still a leash it's still a reminder that she's not really totally free i guess i want to talk about these bad characters and creating these bad characters as a writer and how you because you have these women you say you know when you started describing the series you went you didn't say oh it's elemental magic you went right into it's these four women. It's about these women and their strengths and how they're taking back things after this war. And, you know, so obviously their opposition is going to be important in these stories. Mm-hmm. Talk about the process of writing these counteracting characters to our, our main girls. Well, I think you raised a really good point in mentioning that, you know, Calix is not completely evil. Um, I think completely evil doesn't really interest me because. I don't think, I don't know that that even exists, that completely evil totally exists. I think that everybody who is doing really awful things is doing them because they believe they're doing the right thing. And I think that's arguably the most terrifying thing at all, of all. And I think that's especially true given our world climate, given our political climate, given, you know, all of these different things. And especially, you know, you look at any major issue and the amount of people that are involved in it, it's everyone thinks that they're doing right for their, their families, their people, their constituents, their needs. Um, and I think that that's the most terrifying villain of all, really. Um, and I think that for Calix, from a very young age, he had a lot of hatred for the Alimente, and there's a lot of different reasons for that. But It's almost become like an irrational fear. Like It's like driving his whole existence is this annihilation of these people he sees as a threat absolutely he is terrified and he thinks that everything is going to come crashing down around him if he doesn't act first and as a ruler of a kingdom the weird thing is is if this was another country if he thought one of the opposing countries their sole mission in life was to take down his country nobody would think twice um that he was eliminating an enemy or at least blocking Mm. an enemy but because this is you know it's much more than a country. He irrationally hates one category of people. Um, and unfortunately, I think that that's a theme that's a little a little close to home and a little prevalent right now. But I think that a lot of my interest is really kind of fi- trying to figure out where irrational hatred comes from and why it is so dangerous, um, why it makes you blind to absolutely everything else. And... I do think that it comes from that idea of that person thinks that they're doing the right thing. They're just basing those decisions off of really terrible information. Um, And they're unwilling to, I I had a teacher in grade school that told me someone cannot be reasoned out of what they haven't been reasoned into. And I think that often Hmm. holds true for, you know, fear. The, The reason is not a part of that. So reason can't be a part of the solution either. Um, which is scary. Yeah, that's actually very um, poignant. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
I know. I think about that a lot. That was a really amazing teacher of mine. But um, huh. I think for Calix too, he, you know, it's interesting seeing him through the lens of his siblings because he has a younger sister and a younger brother. Yes. Um, and they love him to a degree. I think they also have a lot of issues with him. But it's difficult to think of him as a very young king who is being challenged by a lot of people and had to be really tough. And we get glimpses of that side through the siblings talking to our main character, um, Shali in book one, like, you know, well, here's why he is the way he is. And it helped me understand him. I actually think he's an incredible character. Like, uh, he's just so complex and I, he's a he's not a good person. <laughs> and no. he does some really, I think, almost surprise, not surprising, but at the same time, I'm like, wow, he really went there. Like awful, awful, awful things that you couldn't even imagine doing to another person. He's doing to another person and he's doing to yes. people in this. And it's just, I don't want to say it's mind boggling because it's, you know, he has shaped who he has become. But at the same time, like you said, I get a better glimpse from the other side of who he was, that he wasn't just this monster, that he was someone who was, like you said, scared and was trying to do the best for his people. And, you know, he even talks about that a bit himself to his wife. And yeah, it's, it was a really interesting dynamic. I will say that it was, um, and he's obviously, well, he's around in book two as well and um, not as present, but still around and, mm -hmm. and influencing the way the world is being shaped because um, his bad choices are essentially directly affecting Aspasia and her potential choices because of what he needs Absolutely. and her leash holder, I guess we should say. And Cyrus is interesting too, because she's, she's like, like a, like a serpent. That's kind of how I feel about her. She's like clever. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Clever evil, like this, like deceiving kind of like, but not in a, his motivations. Again, I don't want to say they make sense to me, but he's got this fear. He had this fear from a childhood and it's shaped who he is. She's just like she makes choices just to hurt people, just to keep people under her foot. She threatens people. She sends, you know, she keeps her leashes tight in different ways. And I, I, she's kind of awful too. <laughs> oh, for sure. And I think she may be a little bit more transparent about it. Yes. I think that, you know, she's a slave to the almighty dollar. Yes. I shouldn't use slave in that context, but um, she is really concerned with her profit and anybody who gets in the way of her profit, it doesn't matter to her. That's, that's how she's gotten to where she is. She has no issues with that, mm -hmm. but she also has a sister and she also has built people that she trusts into this empire. So it's kind of like if you have this, empire that you've built from the ground up that a lot of people are willing to take away from you that you would do anything to protect how do you bring new people to trust into that situation she does kind of want Aspasia to be someone that she can trust but at the same time she's got to know that she can control her and ultimately you really can't work with people with those two opposing forces uh -huh. that's she does not understand that she can't have both she can't trust Aspasia and control her at the same time and she walks that line she really does she does yeah she really, she really tries to. She puts a lot of effort into it. Yeah. But she really does not understand that she can't have both, um, both trust and a guarantee of trust. So that's not a, you know, that'll never go that well for her. But yeah, I mean, she's a cool figure because I just, I love the idea of a woman running this like super illegal trading empire. And having no shame, no shame about it. No shame. No shame in her game whatsoever. None. 
And she loves it. You know what I mean? I think she really enjoys her work and I think she has fun with it. And I had a lot of fun writing her. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, she's, she's forcing a lot of people into doing really terrible things and not caring. And I think, I don't know, sometimes I think about things like the founding fathers who, you know, believed so deeply in these ideals and yet still owned slaves. Yeah. Um, and that you there's such a willingness to be blind to the things that don't profit you um, or that you haven't been taught are a problem. And I think I think about that with Cyrus a lot that, you know, even though I don't think she's nearly as lofty as like a founding father or somebody who really built something with their ideals and their commitment to making a better place for people. But I think that she was trying to get her own power and she was really blind to the price um, that she was costing other people. Mm. And I don't think she really understands. She doesn't believe that karma will will ever come back around for her, Mm. mostly because she doesn't really see that she's doing anything wrong. And I think that that, you know, from her perspective, everybody's taking advantage of everybody else. That's how I win. That's what I need to do. Yeah. But, but of course we get glimpses into Aspasia's deep emotions and how basically everything Cyrus wants and expects and from her and just how she runs her world is completely counterintuitive to how Spazi is wired. It really is. It's Absolutely. just meant to crush hope and crush the idea of freedom and to just be like, well, this is the world we're in. I'm selling people slaves and we're going to do this and you're going to do it with me or I'm going to make you pay for that you know we're in Aspasia's head so we can see how much that just her the choices she has to those lines she has to cross that we were I was referencing earlier whether or not she crosses them um how much they damage her and the choices she has to make whereas Cyrus like you said isn't there she just wants to have her controlled and be under her wing yeah she definitely willfully removes herself from the situation so that Cyrus is not the one doing the terrible acts yes as so often seems to occur with you know criminality and yeah 100 um, absolutely yeah and i think too it's it's interesting that cyrus actually ends up teaching aspasia probably the most important lesson of her entire life which is that you know y- you mentioned that cyrus really strives to sort of crush a lot of hope in people and take their choices away and make sure that people don't have options to defy her but I think Aspasia very clearly sees that no matter how often you try to crush hope, no matter how well you think you've done it, people are always going to find a way to hope regardless. And that's sometimes the most cruel thing that she's learned. And it's sometimes the most um, motivating thing that she's learned. Yeah. Now, Cyrus has an interaction with one of Aspasia's old lovers and and it triggers some interesting conversations with between Aspasia and this, this person. And um, there's a lot, there's some really interesting in both books. I, you have like these non-traditional love triangles kind of happening here. It's like, there's three people involved, but it's not how so much of YA has represented it. And like girl has to choose between two boys who love her fiercely and they're different strengths or whatever you know or who are into her or whatever but but there's still this dynamic of three people and choices and returned affections or not returned affections or how you handle situations and man it was like it was super interesting because we get a glimpse you know before this interesting um interaction happens between cyrus and this particular person and 
but then you know the person's like what were you jealous like they did it they they you know after the fact realized that it was probably done to hurt Aspasia but you know it was really also this person's motivation to kind of get back at her for not feeling the way that they want her to feel and you both books you have these really complicated love interest relationships I guess is a is a good way to phrase it How, talk about kind of creating those dynamics because it, it was it's really fun to read <laughs> thank you I mean first of all I really appreciate that and I do think that you know there was a big as I'm sure you're aware, um, I think there's been a big trend in YA, both first for the love triangle and then the like, love triangle reaction yep. against the love triangle. But I think that, I think the funny thing about relationships is that they never really happen in a vacuum. You know, first of all, there's so many other people involved in your relationship and, you know, in a very smooth sailing scenario that may just be your friends and family and, all of, you know, the people that you care about, that you want to be invested in the new person that you care about. Um, but I think that anytime you're with somebody, it also really harkens back to every emotion you've ever had for another person. And you start acting <laughs> both for and against considerations of whatever happened before. Um, and I think Aspasia is a great character to write in that sense because yeah. You know, she thought she was in a situation where she thought she was having fun with like a little bit more than a friend and he had a much different perception. And it's interesting because because he's the guy in that situation, it seems to have more repercussions for her than if, you know, I think that if the genders were reversed, I think there might be more of an expectation that the guy is sort of over it and the girl is, you know, Pining. she's the one who caught feelings. Yeah. Yes. And I think it was really fun to sort of play with that expectation and be like, she never had that intention. She's not here for that. But again, it doesn't mean she doesn't care about him deeply. Absolutely not. This is one of her oldest friends. Yes. Um, and it's somebody whose relationship she really values. She just didn't understand going in that acting in a way that was more than friends could actually potentially cost her her friendship. Um, and I think she feels a little bit betrayed by that knowledge to be like, this wasn't something I ever, nobody told me this. Huh. Um, and now I'm in this situation. Yeah. yeah. And now I've lost something and that's really complicated and confusing. And furthermore, now I found somebody who I might actually have real feelings for. How do I go about handling that? Especially when this person who is supposed to be a friend and supposed to be someone who always had my back is still in the picture. Yeah. Um, but it's still complicated. And still has bigger feelings and yeah it was just like oh that's rough especially because it's a friend and it's like you know there's one point where um they're having a conversation about how things used to be and, and you know again we're in her head so and at that night they end up like sleeping together not having sex but actually just falling asleep together and being com I, I, and she thinks comforting each other and he's the next day or the next time they talk about it he's all like yeah we're back together and she's like hmm no, that's not what that meant. And he's like, wait, what? You know, so like e things that even seem innocent to her, he's read, misinterpreted. And it just, it's, it's, it's hard to see. It's hard. It was hard to read because I was like, oh, he's her good friend, someone she trusts and rely on. And, and the whole time the other person was in this picture and their relationship was developing, I was just thinking like, oh man, poor dude, he's going to have a, he's going to have a rough time with this. Like, yeah. And it's just like, I think that is, and I think there's a couple of complicating factors to that too, because one of them is that she really, in a sense, is 
very young in her sort of approach to relationships because she really does think that once things have progressed past a certain point, she's like, no, we could totally go back to being friends. And she kind of, I think that that moment where she thinks they're just comforting each other really teaches her that you can't, there's, there's too much there, too much has happened. She's never going to be able to go back to what they had before. Um, or at least not for a really long time. I was just going to say think... it would have to be time and distance, I think, for that. To yeah, happen, absolutely. Which then again breaks the foundation of what their friendship has, is currently. So Right, exactly. And I think, too, that there's also she really faces a lot of power dynamics with her love interests because I think that she's the captain of the ship and she really keenly yes. understands the amount of power that she has over people. Yep. And how complicated that is, because sometimes because of her past history with this friend of hers, it actually interferes with her ability to give orders. And he's sort of undermining her authority because he's sort of using their sexual history against her. And it also means that it really impacts the way she approaches having a new relationship with a new person in her life. Yeah. Because she she understands that he may not actually be free to sort of give his emotions to her. When she's the captain, when she literally has power over him. Yep. It's a really interesting dynamic. And again, totally different from Shalia's dynamic, whereas she is gifted to the king as his new wife, but yet she feels no emotional connection to this person that she's married to and her, sees how her family is and her parents are in love. And she knows so many couples who genuinely have affection for each other and she keeps waiting for it to happen. And it's just like, well guess it's never going to happen. This is my lot. I could maybe come to care for this person. And then he does something, you know, Calix does something awful that tears that down again. And then, you know, she starts to find feelings in a friend and is confused because, oh my gosh, is this what this is supposed to be? And I can't have it with who I'm supposed to be with. It's just, it's a mess. <laughs> but again, the power dynamic's very different because she, she, she's a, such a strong character because she never, I really enjoyed her evolution from, you know, not her naivete with the the we're getting married it'll all be peace forever now but as she comes to realize that how she still takes power onto herself how she challenges the things she doesn't like and that's kind of her way of maintaining her strength in these relationships but at the end of the day she's at the whim of her king husband and how do you handle that so seeing these two women handling two different emotions with two different men in their own various situations. It was really, it was an interesting read. And like I said, I, I read these books back to back. So for me to like have Shalia's story in my head as I'm reading Aspazia's story, it was really fun in my mind to be like, oh, this is different, but it's, it's still a dilemma. It's still an emotional mess. <laughs> yep, absolutely. And I think it's, there, there, I mean, I'll admit that I enjoy writing people who, while I don't think Aspasia really had feelings for anybody else other than like on a friend level. So, you know, again, and, 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 and I guess neither did Shalia. So I wouldn't consider either one of them a love triangle. That's what I mean. It's not a love triangle traditionally, but there's still three people with emotions of varying degrees from each of them towards each other. Like it's, it's this weird, yeah, relationship-y thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think even further complicating it for Aspasia, she's got a really old love interest that pops up. Yes, um, that she also keeps mentally thinking and comparing, going, well, this is what I have as an experience. And what was that like versus what this second other one was like versus just fooling around with someone versus potentially having feelings for someone new. It's yeah, her. Mm -hmm. She's definitely kind of 
um, she seems rather emotionally intelligent. She seems to be kind of in touch with that part of herself, which I don't think a lot of 18 year olds, 17 year olds are. I think it's funny because I think there's moments where she's totally like, totally in touch with herself and very emotionally mature. And then she just has these moments where she's like, you know, and she's acting from a very emotional place. Mm -hmm. I think she acts out of fear um, when she's cornered. And I think, I do think that she felt very sort of upended by her relationship with her friend ending because it didn't end the way her sort of first relationship with the friend ended. They had really prioritized their friendship above anything else. And I don't think either one of them was like truly in love. They just enjoyed each other and had a good time and parted ways when it was natural. And then, so she was sort of like, wait, but aren't all relationships the same? Why wouldn't this happen again? And I think that that does show a little bit of her naivety lack of emotional maturity yeah yeah but it's like weird because you get these glimpses and it makes you it makes me wonder when she's you know as an adult like a full adult how she would develop i don't know it's just it's interesting to think back to myself as as a 17 year old and now as someone in their late 30s to be like oh god you know wow this is like so different so yeah i don't know it was it was a lot of fun (laughs) it was a lot of fun to read and i I really mm-hmm. liked, like I said, I liked that there was this, again, I don't even know what to call it. It's not a triangle, but it's a, her, these strong women having to deal with emotional dilemmas with two different men in their lives. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to summarize it. And, you know, it's kind of funny because you mentioned the whole idea of like being a 30 year old and thinking back to your like 17, 18 year old self. And honestly, I think I was so much more sure of things back then. Like, I think not rightly so. (laughs) But less gray area, you mean? Less gray area and less like, I think I was, I was so, I didn't really have an awareness that like I could make a mistake. You know what I mean? Mm. I sort of just thought that if like I did my best, made the best decision, acted on instinct, trusted my gut, all the things, you know, we tell people, everything would be fine and everything was going to end up exactly the way it should. Um, And I think that, sort of releases you of a lot of culpability but yeah I mean I just remember feeling a lot more (laughs) assured of my decisions at like 16 17 18 than I do as an adult (laughs) well and because now we've experienced the world a lot longer going oh now we have to consider all of that stuff yeah right and I think I think in a lot of ways time has taught me how badly things can fall apart and I think I mean for better or for worse I do think Aspazia knows that um, just how terribly things can go. I think she's had a lot of pain in her life. Mm-hmm. So I guess before we kind of move on and and talk about what you're working on now, I guess I just want to ask you, why elemental magic? Why was that this magic system you went with? Why the four elements and kind of in-between connections as well, which is kind of a cool thing that you uh, touch on a little bit in book one and we bring is much more relevant in book two but how there's kind of people who have connections kind of in between but yeah I'm just curious because elemental magic is hands down my favorite kind of magic to read about I totally want to be a magic uh, an elemental mage <laughs> personally in my life if I could pick anything um, Ooh, which element would you be I don't know I'm a cancer I would probably end up being a waterbender let's be real but I mm-hmm. but I don't know I mean I think the idea that you have, you could manipulate anything. Like I just read um, S.A. Chakraborty's books. Um, she wrote uh, City of Brass and she's a, 
her episode, her book actually comes out the same day as yours, and she's another episode on the podcast. And we were talking about this because one of the things she gave to her magic people is the ability to understand all the languages. And actually, that's something like in reality world, if I could have anything, I would actually want that because that would be so mm. cool to travel to any place in the world and commune and converse with the locals and actually have an intelligent, nuanced conversation and fit in. I think that would be extremely cool. But I don't know. I think too, like the the notion of translation, like knowing other languages and seeing the way that people discuss things, process things, the the terminology that yeah. they use, like linguistics is so fascinating. And I think it reveals a lot about us culturally, just in the way that we choose to use language. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that would be a cool one. But like, if we're talking like core four elements, I probably would be water. I would want earth or I'm not earth. I wouldn't want earth. I would want air because I would want Nobody fly. really wants earth. It's kind of funny. Nobody wants earth. But then, <laughs> you know, but then I was like, oh, she can manipulate metal. That's cool. She could. We could yeah, I precious could like, metals, guys. Get it. I could go, go be a, like a gold digger out in California and make myself rich, I guess. I don't know. But what about you? I would for sure be a water element. And I think that you may be able to see that in this book, despite the fact that Aspasia can control the wind. There's, she has an unparalleled love of the sea. Yes. And she really works very well in concert with the ocean because of the ocean's ability to be acted upon by water. But, and I think she also likes, you know, I loved the idea of imagining her who is so powerful in the air and was almost unconsciously having the wind do things for her. Mm -hmm. um, when she's underwater, she's totally cut off from that. Yes. And I liked that idea of her both dependent on and loving something that actually made her powerless and strong at the same time. Like, mm -hmm. I thought that was a really cool thing for her. But I have loved boats and sailing and ships since I was a really little kid. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you know, not to say that I grew up on the water, but I spent a lot of time on the water as a child. And I just, there's nothing I would love more than be able to like explore the Mariana's Trench. Yeah. Like just the idea that, what is it? Something like 60 or 70% of the world's oceans are totally unexplored. Like we really don't actually know what's out there. <laughs> and how cool would it be? Like it would just be unbelievable. So I'm a little bit obsessed with the water. I have a couple of friends that describe me as aggressively nautical. So there's that. <laughs> aggressively um, nautical. That's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I love elemental magic because I think it has both boundlessness and limitations. It does. Like absolutely. it's been really cool writing the series with my critique group at my back because I work with an author named Katie Slavensky. Um, she writes middle grade and contemporary. Um, and she's also this amazing scientist. So she loves to both poke holes in and lovingly fact check me about what the natural world can do. And with, with Ray and the Earth, we had a long conversation about like, Shalia could not actually make plants grow. That was sort of originally how I imagined the Earth power. And Katie was just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> if you can manipulate the Earth, you would need a lot of other things to make like growth happen. Like, think about the earth itself and, like, rocks and minerals and all this. Don't mm. think about, like, you know, photosynthesis. <laughs> you are not doing photosynthesis. And I was like, man, I want to. <laughs> but I feel like the world you've set up, and, I mean, maybe this is a potential spoiler for a future book, but, like, because you have characters in these kind of in-between elements, um, one of the ones you reference is someone who can, like, 
do frost and ice, but that's all mm-hmm. that they can do. They can't manipulate water, but they're kind of a water air blend. Yes. And I feel like you could have like a water earth blend who could do a plant thing. Like that's kind of a. Theoretically, it still needs like a heat element. So really, if you got all of the elementae coming together, you could do something like actual oh. growth. Yeah. Um, not that I've thought about that at all. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's, it, it definitely had me thinking like, oh, you know, because one of the in-betweeners, she has the ability, our, our, our Aspasia has the ability to kind of sense with her elemental power, others who have that power. And um, so someone she rescues who has that power, she's kind of like, not really sure, like, where are you? Where do you fall? But, you know, she can tell yeah. they have some ability, but they're not really sure yeah, it was. It had me thinking, like, oh, that would be really interesting, and falling in between, and would that be cooler? Would that be harder because you're more restricted, but yet you have a more unique ability? Like, I don't know. I had me had me thinking about all these different ways of of dealing with the elements. So it was very cool. I guess before we go on again, I now you propped up another question, and I I made a note to this. <laughs> Why did you have an air person? on a ship on the ocean though why didn't you make that the water person well the water person has other things to do oh okay she she has a real big future coming okay so it made just sense for your storyline as well it also like i just i think from really early on in the conception of this as a multi-character series i had this picture in my head and actually originally and i just could not get this storyline over there but originally the image I had in my head was a girl on a boat sailing over the dunes in the desert kingdom so that she was using the air power to make a ship fly over sand. And I was just like, oh my God, that's so cool. And it really occurred to me that the most useful place for a wind element is not the land. It has nothing to do with the land. It would be the ocean. It would be the place where you can get absolutely unfettered access to wind mm-hmm. um, and do things a lot faster and a lot smoother. And, you know, what would that look like? Exactly. Because they, they can fly the ship. I mean, we see these characters in a glimpse in book one. So I'm not really spoiling too much here. But they're, right. you know, they're able to get the ship up out of the water using air to buoy the boat up. But and so in theory, you could ride the dunes, but it would probably take a heck of a lot more energy to do that, because like you said, you don't have the natural storm and the natural yeah. winds that are on the ocean. So that makes sense. I was. Yeah, it just had me going. Oh, interesting. Our, our air girl is the is the captain of the ship is our pirate, so to speak. I mean, she's not really a pirate, but, you know, and it was cool, too, because that was another note from Katie that um, when I sort of gave the first draft of this to my critique group. She was like, okay, because Aspasia has this sort of secondary ability with her wind power to be able to summon a storm. And so by manipulating where air is in the atmosphere and sort of like raising and lowering air pressure, um, she can actually call a storm. And my friend was like, okay, but you do realize that A, anytime she's calling a storm like this, and B, even anytime she's using her power, that's displacing air elsewhere. So you're actually more likely to have storms kicking up behind you. Mm, which, and I was like, oh, God, I hadn't thought of that. Yep, which you totally put in, which is, you know. Right. But then I was like, wait, that's actually super cool, and we can totally use that. Yep. Because it's also a limitation of the power. Sometimes that works against her. When she's coming back along a course, she runs into a some real downpour. bad weather because <laughs> she made that happen. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it's so it's so cool. This must be so much fun to play in this world. It really must be because I mean, just being able to talk to you about it, I can hear how much you enjoy these characters. But yeah, this magic world that they get to run in 
and do all this crazy stuff. It's it's pretty it's pretty great. It is. It's been really fun. Um, fantasy is super exciting to write. I also have been finding recently that, you know, 2018 was kind of a year. Girl, um, wasn't right? it ever? Exactly. It really was. Yep. And so actually the thing that I've been working on most recently has nothing to do with this series right now. It's just this really fun, sweet, contemporary book. Mm. Um, and I basically, like, every time I work on it, I sit down and I'm just sort of like, this is the Netflix movie I want to see in the, in the world. Mm. So it's almost like an emotional break for you in a way. Totally. Because I think that the beautiful thing about fantasy and the heavy thing about fantasy and the draining thing about fantasy is that by creating a secondary world, you are naturally commenting on the primary world that the reader is looking at this world through. Hmm. And so you are, you are making statements about the, the lens through which the, the reader is reading, which is, you know, why I think there's, there's so many relevant conversations to be had, but at the same time, that's tough right now. That takes a lot right now. You're right. It's emotional energy. And like you said, there's so much about this series and these characters that connect to our reality right now as Americans in 2018 and 19, like you're saying. So yeah, I could see needing to take a break from that. I mean, it it is a cool thing to have created. I mean, you can also have a bad day and go blow someone up, which is kind of cool. And with, Absolutely. with the fire that comes out of their being or whatever, you know, so which, yep. you know, I'm sure some of us wish we had that ability and kind of glad we all don't let's be real <laughs> mm -hmm. but road um, rage would be a lot different oh my gosh but then people could like fly up into the sky and just get away from it or like douse it with their water powers or whatever yeah, i guess commuting <laughs> would be a lot easier <laughs> uh, again maybe i don't know how much energy would it take to get your car off the ground you know i don't know it's just it's, <laughs> this is a conversation it's like uh, it become esoteric like so let's talk about that no that's it's it is interesting but i could see that so you're working on the contemporary do you do you have books three and four in planning? Are they in the works? Are they to be written eventually? Um, they are pretty well planned out. They currently are not purchased by my publisher. Um, so I'm still waiting for a decision on that. Okay. But yeah, I mean, I know I know what I want to write. I know who these characters are and where the story is going. So I hope I have the chance to do that one day. And yeah. I guess time will tell. Absolutely. Before we sign off, I always like to ask authors what they're reading now that they are loving and kind of give some recommendations. Anything that you've been captivated by, I would love to hear about. I think, I mean, a lot of this is going to be kind of indicative of what I just mentioned, the fact that I've sort of been escapistly reading lately, <laughs> because I just, I want happy, beautiful, delightful things. Mm -hmm. So I actually, a good friend of mine, Tiffany Schmidt, let me beta read her third book in the series, but I highly recommend the first two, um, one of which is coming out in June, I believe, and one of which is already out, and that's the Bookish Boyfriend series. Okay. so it's adorable. It's super adorable, and it's just, like, perfect contempt, because it's this girl who, in, in the first book, it's this girl who loves to read um, and transfers to a new school and suddenly finds that her life may or may not be reflecting Romeo and Juliet. Um, and that is actually kind of a disturbing thing for her. Oh, uh, yeah. But it's also A Date with Darcy is the name of the book. Bookish Boyfriend's A Date with Darcy. So oh, there's some Pride and Prejudice action I mean, going on there who, as well. What woman who hasn't fantasized about Darcy? Let's be real. He's everybody's right. book boyfriend. Let's be totally real about that. So Absolutely. So there is a Darcy in this high school. But, uh, oh, that's amazing. They are, they're perfect. And the next in the series is called The Boy Next Story. 
and I'm trying to remember what the two books mashed up there. Oh, it's Little Women. And what did the book start out as? Oh, I forget the other book. Um, and the one that I just was able to read is actually a ma- mashup of Frankenstein and Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> what? So, yeah. So each of these characters, which I was sort of like, oh, my God, Tiffany, what are you thinking? Frankenstein uh, and Anne of Green Gables. Are you crazy? Uh-huh. But reading it, I was like, oh, my God, my mind is blown. There are so many parallels to these stories. Oh, my gosh. Um, that's amazing. So, yeah, it's they're just they are phenomenal books. They are especially for like deep book ner- nerds, but also like, you know, people who just want like sort of a light and fluffy read. Like there's a lot of really amazing layers to these books. And I'm just obsessed. Oh, I think it's The Great Gatsby and Little Women is the second one. So the second one is The Boy Next Door. And the third one is currently called Talk Nerdy to Me. <laughs> it's amazing. They actually they sound just, like contempt I would read. That sounds pretty awesome. They're amazing. And they just keep getting better and better. What else have I read recently that I was obsessed with? Less on the lighter side, but I guess keeping with the whole Jane Austen theme, I loved Evie's a Boy's Pride. I think that was one of my favorite books of this past year. I loved it. I don't know that book. Uh, Evie's a Boy is, I think, one of the best new talents in the past couple of years. I believe her t- her debut was just oh, 2017. I've seen the cover for this, yes. Yeah. Um, American Street is amazing. That was her debut book, and Pride is sensational. Um, so I'm just like hanging on the edge of my seat seeing what she's going to write next. Oh, awesome. And there's actually a book you are you said in the middle of that you are really enjoying that I'm actually going to be reading soon myself you were telling me about earlier. Oh, yes. That's uh, my friend Bridget Kemmerer's A Curse So Dark and Lonely, um, which is a retelling of Beauty and the Beast. And it's just, it's so original. It's so different. Um, and it really sort of changes a lot of the ways that we talk about this story. So I, you know, I'm racing to the end of it and I'm so excited. She and I are going out on tour with Mimi Yu, uh, who wrote The Girl King. So hopefully I'll be able to maybe see some of these listeners in some of those cities. But yeah, I'm really excited to just hit the road and see some friends and talk some books. Oh man, that sounds great. And for those of you listening, uh, Bridget's going to be on for our Valentine's episode, because I have another author who also has a Beauty and the Beast book, and I'm going to interview both of them, and that one's going to be on February 12th. So yeah, I can't wait to talk to her about this book. I've heard nothing but good things. Everyone I know who's read it's been like, it's so good, and even you confirming, oh my gosh, it's so good. So I can't wait to read it. So yeah, those sound like great recommendations. I'll make sure to put those as a list on um on the on the blog that has this all this info on the episode. Uh, thanks, Annie. This was this was really fun. It was so great to talk to you. I really, I really am so grateful that you reached out. Um, and this was a wonderful chance to chat. And I love talking books with people. So thank you yeah. for a great conversation. Books are always great to discuss. And guys, if you haven't picked up Rain the Earth, that's book one in the series. That one's already out. Imprison the Sky is out on and two days from now on January twenty second. We're recording a little early. I'm putting the podcast up tomorrow, but. Um, they are amazing. I really recommend them if you like elemental magic, if you like complex characters. Like I said, we have non-traditional love triangles, all the cool stuff we talked about here today. We tried not to be too spoilery for those of you who haven't read them yet, um, who could maybe pick them up and jump right in. And uh, thanks for listening. And next week's episode is going to be S.A. Chakraborty talking about uh, The Kingdom of Copper, which is a sequel to The City of Brass. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye!